Good morning, everyone. It's uh, Monday, September 11th, 2023. I'm Herb Morgan, Senior Managing Director or Chief Investment Officer here at Cantor Managed ETF Portfolios. This is my weekly economic and market commentary after being gone on vacation for the last two weeks. Thank you for allowing me to do that. And thank you for allowing me to skip uh, this presentation for a couple of weeks. It's got me refreshed and uh, ready to, to go. Uh, Interesting, we're back, it is a Monday, it is September 11th, it's uh, 22 years from the date of the September 11th attacks, uh, Washington DC, in New York City, the World Trade Center. Um, and for those of you that don't know, I'm sure everybody does, on September 11th, 2001, Cantor Fitzgerald's headquarters, uh, we're in the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Uh, and uh, very sadly and horrifically, 658 of our colleagues were killed by the attacks from the uh, 19 militants from the terrorist group Al-Qaeda. Today, though, uh, the firm has come back stronger, bigger than ever before. Uh, there is now a beautiful memorial in New York City. If you ever get a chance to see it, it is fabulous, really, really quite good. If you don't get a chance to go to New York City, there's a great movie a documentary that was made that's available on uh, I think Amazon or Netflix, one of those. It's called Out of the Clear Blue Sky. And we're, we're just uh, very fortunate for our firm and our colleagues and the growth, the success of the firm and the ability to come back uh, from that very tragic day. We're also very proud of uh, our 501c3 charity, which is called the Cantor Fitzgerald Relief Fund. Uh, you can read about it at cantorrelief.org. Uh, if you're interested, there's also, of course, the ability to donate to that charity. And employees have the ability today to donate their uh, salary for the day if they so choose. And the firm donates uh, to the thing 100% of its profit uh, for the day each year on September 11th. Uh, we come together in uh, New York with a lot of uh, uh, politicians and celebrities and uh, athletes uh, to make phone calls uh, to our customers around the world and to interact and engage and to help those celebrities, politicians, and athletes also raise uh, charitable funds for their preferred causes. It's a great thing. And um, thank you for allowing me to diverge to talk about it a little bit here this morning. As a reminder, the presentation you're about to see under here has been prepared by me for use with you, whether you are an investor or a financial advisor. Either way, you're expected to make your own investment decisions. Nothing contained in the presentation is investment advice. It should be treated as such. No recommendations for the purchase or sale of any securities at all. S&P 500 is up 17.4% year to date, not 1,743%. If it were, we'd all just retire right now. Uh, down week across the board last week, a lot of red you can see there. Small cap, particularly hard hit, lost half of its gain, more than half of its gains for the year. Mid-cap stocks down. Uh, it was a rough, rough week. Bar interest rates edged a little higher, sending the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index down about a third of a percent. But overall, despite uh, a lot of concerns about bank failures, inflation, interest rates, slowdowns, uh, wars, uh, it's been a good year for investors in financial asset classes, stocks and bonds. Uh, look at high yield, up 6% so far for the year. Um, the aggregate bond index is barely off the mark, but that's because of the longer duration, heavily government-oriented aspect of the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index. 
moving along, let's get into data from last week. Factory orders, which is normally a volatile series. So factory orders, normally a volatile series. You can see on the right there, you see some up and some down uh, months after a long period coming out of COVID of all up months. So that's the recovery and the reopening and coming out of the recession. Um, but that was a pretty good negative last month. Uh, factory orders fell 2.1%, not as bad as expected, uh, but we're getting sort of what I would call back to normal. You're gonna have some up and some down months as you move along. Overall trend, of course, is growth, uh, as long as those, those factory data numbers like the ISMs, et cetera, are, are above 50. We got data on the trade deficit for the month of July. As a reminder, the trade, the balance of trade, adds to GDP if you have a surplus, and it subtracts from GDP if you have a deficit. So we have been subtracting from GDP, really for the last 30 years, with our trade deficit, came in in July at minus 64, 65 billion, a little better than expected. We had some improvement. You can see, look at that January 22, We've had a little improvement, a little trend here over the last year, year and a half. Um, one of the biggest contributors to the American trade deficit is uh, the petroleum, obviously energy, and then just cheap consumer goods. Uh, the U.S. sends a lot of money overseas to buy cheap consumer goods. That keeps a lid on inflation. It keeps a lid on pricing pressure. Uh, but it also uh, gives us a way to uh, we send dollars overseas, and those dollars end up being repatriated in the form of um, foreign entities, governments, uh, buying U.S. treasuries. Finances are perpetual budget deficit, the budget deficit, which is expected to be $2 trillion this year. That is probably my biggest financial concern, it always is, is the accumulation of those deficits into a national debt. At what point does it become unsustainable? even for a nation who holds the status of the reserve currency and has the unique privilege of being able to perpetually run debt and deficits. The only country in the world that can do that. Global, S&P Global Services, PMI, that's the service sector of the economy, which is about 85% of the US economy, manufacturing is about 15%, fell from 52.3 in August to 50.5. That is just barely above the line between expansion and contraction. The services sector is the reason I've been wrong. I was wrong about my, my recession call back in March. We never ended up entering recession. I thought for sure the contraction in bank lending, which did happen, was enough to tip us into negative growth. But the service sector, which relies, I guess, a little less on that bank financing, not, they're not immune to it, of course, but relies a little less, has been resilient. That is starting to soften a little bit, at least by one measure. If you look at the ISM measure for services for August, they say just the opposite happened. Rose from 52.7 to 54.5, well above the expectations, and to a very, very healthy number. And then when you look below the headline number, new orders from 55 to 57.5, activity 57.3, that's downright robust, and employment up to 54.7. We just, we've had 18 months of interest rate hikes and we still have not seen a crack in the jobs market. That's really great, we're sort of happy about it. Initial claims for unemployment, which are reported every Thursday morning, 
fell to 216,000 last week. You remember, you know, back in the beginning of this year, they were edging higher. And I said, well, if we crack through 300,000, there's a chance the Fed will stop raising rates. They might even start cutting rates. They're going to have to, because that's the one thing that will stop them from raising rates to, to fight inflation would be job losses. And we're just not seeing it. Continuing claims now below 1.7 million at 1.679. So this healthy jobs market, healthy service sector recovery uh, has sort of stared the, the, the specter of higher interest rates in the face and won. We're happy about that. We also got uh, productivity and unit labor costs last week. Non-farm productivity is rising. Uh, the big increase in labor costs, which we had been seeing, which means it just drives productivity down, blue line, uh, has been abated. So despite a strong labor market, um, the sort of mismatch is beginning to mitigate, and that's sending productivity higher and unit labor costs lower, which is contributing to lower inflation expectations. Lower inflation expectations are key to driving down actual rates of inflation, and the actual prospect for the Federal Reserve to continue to raise interest rates. As of this morning, looking at Fed funds futures, that's the ability of large institutional investors to make significant financial positions on the directionality of the Fed funds interest rate. That's the main interest rate set by the Federal Reserve. It's an overnight lending rate. And they intervene in the market to, to get that rate where it needs to be. The next Fed meeting is this month, September 20th. It's in nine days. And there's, uh, looks like about a 7% chance of a rate hike. So nobody's predicting a right rate hike, or almost nobody's predicting a rate hike. Those odds rise to a mere 37% at the November 1st meeting, begin to decline rapidly. And starting in January, the odds now favor, albeit not by much, but they start to favor rate cuts. So the market, now originally they thought we'd be cutting in 2023, that's no longer the case. They thought that the Fed rate hikes would go too far too fast, cause job losses, they would be forced to reverse and cut. Uh, and now that no longer is the case. Even the Treasury Secretary, not part of the Fed, but Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was, said, was quoted over the weekend as saying, hey, I think we can get through this without the job losses. Of course, any Treasury Secretary would always say that, uh, we have to wait and see, but so far it really looks like um, it's happening and it's going well. Inevitably though, we will have a recession someday. The good news is the Fed now has the dry powder because the Fed funds rate is so much higher to cut rates when that happens. It's a good sign, quite frankly, we're very happy about it. So what is happening with inflation? And that's really the key right now. And so let's take a quick check in and look, this is the CPI. You can see the red line is the core CPI. It moves up less and it moves down less. It is less volatile than the blue line, which is CPI. The only difference is core doesn't include food and energy. Of course, food and energy are important components of determining inflation, but it's just another way to allow us to sort of look at the data and make investment decisions. Both are published together simultaneously by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. As you can see, both are trending lower they are not down to the Fed's preferred target, which is 2%. You can see here from you know, August 2013 to February of 21, we, tra we traded and trended all around that 2% level before that massive spike. Now, the massive spike was caused by 
excessive fiscal and monetary stimulus in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Okay, but what about the other measures of CPI? The one that the Fed uses to determine whether or not they're meeting their mandate is one called core PCE inflation. They like core PCE inflation because it is weighted by actual use and actual spending power. If people begin to spend more money on ice cream, ice cream will have a higher weighting in the index or more money on cell phones or cars or electricity. And so they think it's a better index. I think they're right. They show the same trend, PCE, the blue line coming down, coming down fast, coming down from 7% down to three. And the core, less volatile, was coming, is coming down from about five and a half down to about four. Those are still well above the Fed's target for inflation. We expect they'll continue to go, but we don't expect the Fed to continue to raise interest rates because they have already hit interest rates for 18 straight months or 18 months. And we, we expect that they will wait and let the market continue to react and continue to catch up. We call it the policy delay or the policy lag effect. Policy lag effect is seems to be working. Now, if inflation were to pick up, uh, and there are many reasons it could outside of the control of money supply and, and short-term interest rate uh, policy targeting. Uh, usually it's an external factor. It's a supply-related factor. Could be energy, right? OPEC could have an impact because gasoline has a big impact on our inflation numbers. Because gasoline and oil affects everything we do in our economy. Um, so, but for now, absent any major disruption, we expect Fed policy to be on pause no hikes, no cuts, at least for the foreseeable future. And one of the things the Fed will watch closely are these market-traded inflation break-even numbers. This is the, uh, I'm gonna overly simplify it, but this is the number that traders, large institutional traders are betting on that inflation will be uh, over the next two, five and 10 year period. The two-year number is currently at 2.18%. That's a number that can move very quickly, highly volatile, and kind of less reliable. The five and the 10-year number are 2.3 and 2.35% respectively. That's above the target of two. So there's no reason for the Fed to start cutting rates anytime soon, unless we have a, a recession and or job losses. So for now, they're waiting for those inflation expectations to continue to dip further and get back to that 2% line, which we used to trade around very well until sort of the, you know, I would say policy mistake uh, of excessive deficit finance, fiscal stimulus and excessive monetary stimulus, well-intentioned response to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Economic data this week today on 9-11, nothing expected. Tomorrow, small business optimism, which has been improving lately, Consumer price index, very important. Key, Thursday, jobless claims, retail sales, PPI, or producer price index, along with business inventories. Import and export prices, uh, New York State manufacturing expected to be negative yet again. Industrial production utilization, utilization below 80% is always good, non-inflationary or disinflationary. And then finally, consumer sentiment. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Don't forget, you can get this as an email with the graphs and charts, or you can just listen on your podcast. Thanks, and I'll be back to you again in one week.